Thanks for listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. You're grounded. Now, those are two words that no teenager ever wants to hear, at least in my day. And for those listeners who might be around the world who have never heard that English phrase, or for you listeners who may be such saints that those words never were uttered in your house growing up, when your parents said, you're grounded, it means you had done something very wrong. And all your rights and privileges were being suspended for a while until you learned your lesson. Maybe you broke curfew and came home too late or got into trouble doing something foolish with your friends, so you couldn't go out or were restricted to your room every day after school and on weekends for a certain period of time. Or the worst of them all, you lost the car keys and couldn't go anywhere other than school or to pick up your sister from gymnastics. My students today, they usually pout to me and tell me that they're grounded from their phone for a while for something they have done. A fit punishment for today's teenagers, I think. I got grounded only one time that I can remember. After I blew up the speakers in our youth leader's car on a youth group outing in sixth grade. A stupid prank gone wrong, but that's another story for another time. And I don't remember what I was grounded from, meaning what I had to give up, but I remember grounding was meant to be a punishment, a restriction from certain freedoms, and a time to think about the infraction for introspection to hopefully learn the lesson and not go astray in that way again. I was thinking about that term, being grounded. And as a teenager, it sent shudders down your socially centered spine because it meant you were confined to the grounds of your home cut off temporarily from contact and influences from the outside world, not allowed to leave the outer gate. You were grounded to stay on the grounds. It was meant to be an isolating period to bring you back to your senses. Now, in another sense of the word, grounding to mature adults can have another meaning and implication. We might compliment someone in saying that they're well-grounded, meaning their life is quite centered. They have a solid foundation. They can be trusted, they're dependable, and they have their head on straight. We might even take some personal time to get our act together and get focused again, getting grounded when life seems a bit out of sorts in a certain season. For Paul, with a caring spiritual parent's heart to the church in Colossae, he wants the Colossian believers to be grounded because too many outside influences are negatively bombarding them. And he's concerned about how they might be affected and that without some grounding time, they just might go astray. So he's writing to them in this section, bringing them back to the firm foundation, grounding them in the sure things of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why Jesus makes all the difference. Grounding them from the false whispers and lies of other tainted gospels so that they might reflect on the true, powerful gospel that they had first believed. As he reminded them in the verses we saw in the last podcast, God the Father had delivered them and us from the power of darkness, ripping us away from the power and authority of the enemy, conveying us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we were bought by his blood, our sins washed away. Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God, allowing mankind to see for the first time, what if God were one of us? The incarnation, God in the flesh as he walked among us, And he, Jesus, is the creator, the eternal one who made all things. So why would we turn to worship inferior things that were created when we can exalt the one who made all things? Now in this episode, Paul wants to cement them in place, grounding them firmly in who Jesus is and how important it is that they stick to him and are not moved away to other things, no matter how enticing that the world dangles before them, other philosophies, other interpretations, other paths, 
because all of them are inferior to what they had already come to believe. Listen now as we focus on Colossians 1, starting in verse 19. As I mentioned in the intro, getting grounded was meant to remind you who was in charge, that somehow your independence had gone a little too far and you were going off course. In the verses we finished with on the last podcast, Paul needed to remind the Colossians just who was in charge, who made the rules, and who had the true authority. Speaking of Jesus, we read, we read last time in verses 18 and 19, And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus is first, at least he should be, before all else, the head of the church. He is preeminent, nothing else in front of him. And as we continue in the verses we're focusing on this episode, Paul sets out to show them why Jesus is in charge, why he has every reason to call the shots, and why they should trust and yield and honor all he calls upon them to do and how he instructs them to believe and to live. Picking up then today in verses 19 and 20, for it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The identity and nature of Jesus was under attack, maybe not confrontationally, but certainly subversively and undermining, that maybe Jesus was just a way to God, or just another prophet or good teacher or a spiritual leader or an angel, or he was something important, but let's not make too big a deal out of Jesus. Paul wants to make sure there is no confusion over Jesus, for it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Exalting Jesus was not slighting God or irreverent or making God jealous. The Father was totally fine with them worshiping Jesus because, well, Jesus was the fullness of God. The ancient Greek word pleroma, used here for fullness, was really just another way to say that Jesus is truly God. While the Gnostics distributed the divine powers of God among various aeons, Paul gathers them all up in Christ, a full and flat statement of the deity of Christ. The phrase in him, should all the fullness dwell, summarizes and puts an exclamation point in all that Paul just said about Jesus, calling him image of God, firstborn over all creation, creator, the eternally preexistent, the head of the church, the victor over death, first in all things. And this fullness dwelt in Jesus. The word refers to a permanent dwelling, not a temporary. It's a home, not a hotel room. Paul is focusing on the fact that Jesus was not temporarily God, being God-like for part of his life or his ministry or earthly manifestation. But Jesus is permanently God, God in nature, the fullness of God dwelling fully in Jesus. Now remember, in Colossae there were the early roots of Arianism, that Jesus was not God, that taught that the Trinity was not a thing. There are still groups today that reject the teaching of the Trinity, the belief that there is only one God in all existence and that God exists in three distinct, simultaneous, co-eternal, co-powerful persons known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, claiming that they can't all be God and they can't all be one. There must be some hierarchy there. As a young believer, I tried to wrap my head around it and finally found some solace when one youth leader said, it's like water. 
H2O in three forms, liquid, like you drink from the faucet, solid, like you get from the ice maker, and steam, like that rises when you boil water. All of them are all water. They all have the same formula, H2O, but each in a unique form, fulfilling a different role. Well, that made sense to me. I was able to grasp it in that way. Now, critics today, and likely those undermining the faith of some in the Colossian church, argue that the term Trinity does not occur in the Bible. And they're correct. However, we see the concept taught throughout the Bible. Just as monotheism is taught in the Bible, the term monotheism is not found. So a word does not have to be found in the scriptures in order for the concept to be taught. What we do find taught in scripture is that some of the attributes prescribed to one of the members of the Trinity are also attributed to the other members of the Trinity. And since they share those same attributes, then they are all divine. Here are some examples. They are all called God. The Father is called God in Philippians 1-2. The Son is called God in John 1, verse 1 and verse 14 and Colossians 2, verse 9. The Holy Spirit is called God in Acts 5, verses 3 through 4. Another thing, they are all referred to as the Creator. The Father in Isaiah 64, 8, the Son in John 1, 3 and Colossians 1, 15 through 17, and the Holy Spirit in Job 33, verse 4 and Job 26, verse 13. They're all called the one who resurrects. The Father in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, the Son in John 2, 19 and John 10, 17, and the Holy Spirit resurrects in Romans 8, 11. In addition, they all indwell the believer. The Father in 2 Corinthians 6.16, the Son in Colossians 1.27, the Spirit in John 14.17. All three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are omnipresent or everywhere at once. The Father in 1 Kings 8.27, the Son in Matthew 8, uh, 28 verse 20, and the Spirit in Psalm 139 verses 7 through 10. And another thing, they are all all-knowing. An attribute of the Father in 1 John 3.20, of the Son in John 16.30, in 21 verse 17, and the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. Now, man's philosophies sometimes try to work their way around the Trinity, claiming Jesus was a created angel coming to fulfill a role, or the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. We just saw, though, that many of the attributes attributed to one of deity, attributes of deity, are attributed to the others as well. And so scripturally, we see the principle there of the Trinity, God in three persons. And there was no sibling rivalry or power play, as Paul says in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Jesus was not some second in command or a lower deity or demigod to be revered, but don't let him dethrone God by any means. It pleased the Father that the fullness of God should dwell in Jesus. Jesus is God. And they should not doubt that or let anyone else demean that. Now, on the last podcast, I mentioned when I was in Slovenia, a story about the park where we used to meet. And this woman, Jožica, that we met who, who just really needed to know that God loved her. Well, it seems like a lot of key ministry moments took place there in that park in Celia. And I remember this other time being in there in the park. And I could see them coming from a ways away. They were some Jehovah Witnesses, dressed nicely with their shoulder bags full of literature. Now, most Jehovah Witnesses I have met are wonderful people. They're zealous for what they believe, and they are diligent to share with others, boldness to go door to door. But in their doctrine, the Lord Jehovah is God, and there's no room for the Trinity. Jesus was a manifestation of the Archangel Michael, and the Holy Spirit is just a force. And as they approached the bench where I sat, they struck up a conversation, and I engaged with them. 
it was pleasant for a while as they were happy to meet someone who would talk to them, and they loved it when I spoke of God and acknowledged his Old Testament name, Jehovah, or Yahweh. Well, I had recently listened to a teaching by a pastor named Chuck Missler, an apologist, and he had gone over a few key things that could be shared with Jehovah Witnesses, and I had taken some mental notes, so I was kind of prepared for this conversation. So before the two witnesses could get too far in their spiel, I asked if I could share some things. And I opened the Slovene Bible, their Bible that they were holding, their translation of the Bible, to the book of Isaiah. Because they love Isaiah, one of their key books that they use to support their doctrines. And because I wanted them to see with their own eyes in Scripture what I was about to share. So I opened it there and I started in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. It says, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. I read it and I said, Jehovah, the Lord. It says there that he's the first and the last. And they nodded enthusiastically. We were on the same page, the eternal God, Jehovah, first and last. Then I flipped a few pages over, Isaiah 44, verse 6, and I read it. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Hallelujah, I said, Jehovah, the Lord, the first and the last, no other gods. And they agreed, affirming with a hallelujah, Jehovah. So I turned a few more pages, Isaiah 48, verse 12. It says this, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. It's Jehovah, I said, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. They smiled, so thrilled that I knew this about the Lord. So then I flipped over to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, another key book they use to uphold their doctrinal positions, such as the 144,000 that are listed there. They claim that those are not literal Jews, but are 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses who are in heaven, a set number already filled. So there in Revelation, in their own Bible, I pulled up Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, I read, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Hallelujah, I said, it's Jehovah, and they agreed. They were really blown away that I knew so much about Jehovah, the Lord. Next, Revelation 1.17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I looked up from the scripture and smiled. Jehovah, the first and the last. They were enjoying this reverence that I was giving to Jehovah, the Lord, the first and the last. Well, now that we had established together that Jehovah is clearly called the first and the last in Scripture, and there is no other, the Alpha and the Omega, I went for my last verse, Revelation 2.8, thanks to Chuck Missler. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, and I slowed down for dramatic effect, who was dead and came to life. I looked at them and said, The first and the last who was dead and came to life. Jehovah, the first and the last, was dead and came back to life. Jesus is Jehovah. He died. He came back to life. Jehovah, the first and the last, he died and he rose again. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is Jehovah. And I closed their Bible and handed it back and they looked at one another. Then they tried to tell me I was misunderstanding that the final verse was symbolic of something or another. And they quickly ended the conversation and went on their way. But to this day, I pray that they heard the truth and that that truth will make them free, that that crack in their false theology and false doctrine, misunderstanding of who Jesus is, was just big enough that all the other false things would crumble eventually. Not to be disrespectful to them or to undermine their culture or belief system, but because if God has no problem calling Jesus God, 
then why should man? So looking again at verses 19 and 20, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. God's fullness dwelling in Jesus Christ, and it brought pleasure as well that Jesus should be a member of the Godhead of the Trinity to reconcile all things to himself by him, by Jesus. To reconcile. To make two things that were once separate or fractured or not in agreement, to reestablish them, to settle the conflict or issue, to bring them back face to face. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verse, 13, sorry, verse 2 verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus bringing us near through his substitutionary sacrifice. God reconciling all things to himself. Jesus taking the punishment, the judgment, the wrath of God so that we don't have to. You know, God did not leave it up to anyone else, not up to us to fix things. The problem of sin, though man brought it upon himself with Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden, and all of us confirming it all through our own sin and rebellion, separated, estranged from God the Father, our own creator, this is something that we could not fix. Though we might attempt it in our good works or our devotion or our good behavior, we can never get our act together enough or be good enough. We can never reform ourselves enough or get disciplined enough. So God reconciled all things to himself. He just did it himself. Delegating can be an awesome thing, having others get on board and help you. And working as a team can be a great thing when each part, when each person does their part and then uses their own strengths. But sometimes the work isn't quite done the way that you want it to be done. Usually because it's not as important to the other person you asked to take care of it. And if it is really important to you, a lot of times you need to take care of it yourself so that the job is thorough enough or complete enough or done to the standards you are seeking. God reconciled all things to himself, not leaving it up to us to break down the wall because it was too important of a thing to get taken care of. And there was no way that we would ever be able to reconcile ourselves. Sinners cannot make themselves unsinners. Sinners cannot pay the price of their own judgment. And the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God is told to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, the precious son that God had given him after years of seeking and trying, and they go three days journey. And once they arrive, they leave the servants and take the wood and climb the hill. And they prepare the altar. And Isaac asks the fateful question. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. God will provide for himself a lamb. And at the moment of obedience, with his knife raised high, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. God providing for himself the sacrifice, not requiring anything from Abraham but faith. But many would point out that when God said he would provide for himself a lamb for the offering, it could also be God said that he would provide himself for a lamb for the offering. 
And that though in that situation on Mount Moriah, a ram was provided, sparing Isaac, that about 2,000 years later on the same mount, God would provide himself as the lamb, the lamb of God that takes upon him the sin of this world, sparing our lives, Jesus offering his own life instead, the penultimate substitutionary sacrifice, God himself reconciling us to himself. And notice how complete that sacrifice was in verse 20 of Colossians 1. Reconciling all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. All of creation has fallen with the fall of man, as Paul wrote to the Romans. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. This world that we live in, even the natural world, has been impacted by sin, disease, famine, environmental frailty, the genetic code, weather patterns. All of creation longs for Jesus to return and restore order. And man has done a great job of exasperating all of these fallen areas, but man cannot make it all right again. And we can be pretty self-absorbed in thinking that we can fix it all. It's like the Tower of Babel, if you look at the world today. Man is pulling out all the stops, trying to come up with solutions and ways and directions all in his own, without God. The only hope the creation has, the fallen creation, is for Jesus to make everything right. And he waits, because when he returns, he will need to come in judgment. So he allows creation to struggle along for just a little longer, giving us just a little bit longer to cry out to be reconciled, lest we stand in opposition to him when he comes. But when John had the glimpse of what was to come in Revelation, he saw the fulfillment, the full reconciliation, hearing this, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Right. For these words are true and faithful. John was told to write this down, that he, the Lord, will make all things new. Sin will find its place nowhere in creation, not in the smallest atom or DNA strand or virus or most obscure nook or cranny in the universe. All things will be made new, reconciled by Jesus. In the meantime, what can we do as the believer? Invite Jesus into every broken place in our lives, in our spheres, in our world. It pleased the Father that Jesus would reconcile, to make things right. And how often, even as believers, we forget this. So we take it upon ourselves to try and fix things, patch all things, when we can't, because we are broken piece in a broken puzzle. So we cry out to Jesus, inviting him to make something beautiful out of the mess that we're in out of the mess that we have made. And those sincere cries are ones that he is more than willing to step into, no matter how messy the situation might be. Paul wants the Colossians to get grounded again, not to lose focus on Jesus, the biblical Jesus, which some of these outside influencers were distorting. Focus was going elsewhere, and Paul knew that that would lead them from the powerful truth of the gospel, placing the focus on themselves or something else rendering their precious faith powerless and ineffective. Because if Jesus is not in the picture, the true Jesus, then all we have is the best that man has to offer, which is always futile.
And so to remind them of the powerful, wonder-working power of Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, he tells them to look no further than the mirror, saying in verses 21 and 22, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And you, Paul says, remember, believer, how God reconciled you. We saw in the last podcast how God delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And here he adds to that. We were once alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works. Alienated. There's that word alien there. Foreign. Not of the same world. Somewhere out there. Outsiders. Separated and outcast. None of us likes to be alienated. There's a deep need in us to belong, whether that be in the playground in school as a child or the teenager who just doesn't fit in or an adult who's making choices differently than what society deems right. Being alienated is not a pleasant experience. But none of those compare with being alienated from God, sin separating us from the very relationship that we were created for. And the one thing we need in this world and life God himself. And yet we were alienated. And more than that, we were enemies in opposition to God, fighting against God in rebellion. This is something this all-inclusive world sometimes forgets. We live in a day and an age where we're trying to reconcile all things, to bring together a fractured world and culture and society, but often in our own philosophies and our own understanding, to reconcile how opposing views and lifestyles and beliefs and actions, how they can all work together or exist in harmony. And so we shrug our shoulders and affirm everyone and everything and say, it's all good. You do you. And while our intentions might be good in wanting everyone to feel loved and accepted and that they belong, this ignores the fact that, as it says here in Colossians 1.21, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. When we stop calling sin, sin, we rob people from seeing the power of the cross. We tell them that they can continue in separation from God because we'll accept them. And hey, God loves you so much, he'll probably accept you too. And that being an enemy of God is okay because we will advocate for them. But it robs people from seeing the one thing that they need, the power of the cross, and also to see the power of deliverance, the power of the Holy Spirit to lead them out of a life that might be called sin by God, wicked works as he would call it. And this is something the Colossians were teetering on. And Paul wanted them to look in the mirror, take a good long look in the mirror. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Once alienated, once enemies, now described as holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Wow, talk about an extreme makeover. Aaron and I watched an episode of a series about these two millennial girls doing uh, motel renovations, going into this old rundown 70s motel and making it into a boutique Instagrammable hotspot. We're just one episode in, but it's definitely in our queue as everyone loves an extreme makeover show whether it be the biggest loser and someone goes through tremendous body transformation, you can't even recognize them, or the home renovations of the motel show we saw or anything on HGTV for the most part. There's something so inspiring, motivating, and fulfilling about seeing a makeover, 
like it inspires and invigorates and, and can be pretty emotional too. Paul wants them to have an extreme makeover moment when he writes, and you who once were alienated and enemies, now you are holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Take a look in the mirror, believer. Holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Even if no one else sees you that way, he does. Holy, set apart for special use. He sees you different from the rest of the world, like a spotlight trekking with you through the crowd as you go about your days. In his sight, you are different, the apple of his eye. Having been reconciled, he also sees the believer as blameless, without blemish, as a sacrifice, without fault or spot. That's what the word means there. The priests were prescribed in the law to scrutinize each offering, to make sure there was no blemish on it, nothing imperfect, no imperfections, no flaws, God deserving the best and not the leftovers. Well, we are surely all flawed at best, lots of blemishes. I have photoshopped a photo or two in my day. And when I taught yearbook, I would zoom in sometimes in on photos and do some touch-ups. Every now and then, I would actually remove zits from poor teenagers' pictures. Really, I would think about the kid and how they probably wouldn't want to be seen or remembered for the zit they had on picture day, or in that candid photo that was taken the day they forgot to wear makeup. So I would use the blemish tool on Photoshop and take out the obvious zit. Having been reconciled, all the blemishes that still remain, Jesus doesn't see them. Not that God is delusional or blind or in denial about our blemishes, but because in Jesus, his perfection covers our blemishes. And finally, having been reconciled, we are above reproach in his sight. Above reproach. Unaccusable. Nothing to pick out or blame with. Talk about being covered in grace. Get close enough to even the most saintly believer, and eventually you'll find a flaw and be able to point it out. And especially if you go digging, you'll find something from the past to hold over their head. It becomes a national pastime in the cancel culture that we live in. But above reproach, unaccusable, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, does not want us to be freed from the past. He loves to dig up and stir up and hold up all the dirt he can. And many believers struggle with condemnation over the mistakes of the past. Living in feelings of being disqualified or like they're on probation. It can be crippling and keep us from experience of the fullness of what God has. Paul himself had a past. And he wrote this to the Philippians. One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was free from the transgressions of his past, confident in the completed work of Christ now, and able to write, though he was once alienated in an enemy, now he was considered holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. What a refreshing word. As Christians, we are not delusional or in denial or hypocrites, but we believe that though we once were enemies of God, that Jesus, he accepted us. God has accepted that and he's taking care of it. And we can move forward in victory, free from the past and extending that same grace to others as well. Seeing that if they just knew Jesus, though now they are enemies of God, they too would have full access to all that he has for them and be holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And his sight is all that matters, isn't it? The world may accuse you or condemn you or criticize you. But as Paul reflected in Romans 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul is concerned 
because some in Colossae are losing sight of all these wonderful truths, being drawn away by and clouded by, tainted by other things, losing focus on the preeminence of Jesus and being robbed of seeing just how great Jesus is. So he brings sobriety to the situation, as their hearts may have been wavering, writing in verse 23, You are holy and blameless and above approach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here comes the grounding again. If indeed... Now, of course, this is one of those verses that many people can jump on. Is he saying here that they could walk away, that we can lose our salvation? Well, remember, I've said in a previous podcast that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I believe that the word of God is two-edged, meaning there are places that we see that it seems to offer security to the believer. Don't worry, God has you. You might mess up, you might stumble, but if you are one of those chosen ones, then God has you. On the other side of it, verses like this, if indeed you continue in the faith, then you're in, but be careful, don't walk away. Kind of a a warning and an exhortation. Paul is concerned that some of them are leaning too far out, reaching too far away from the foundation of the gospel, wandering a little too far from the truth. And so there is a bit of a warning, a sober warning that, hey, how far are you going to get from the truth? Because there is no guarantee that you'll ever make it back. Paul reminds them, you heard the truth. I gave you the truth. Other people gave you the truth. We've told you the truth. Even though Paul had not been there, he knew those that had been there and he knew the gospels that they taught. And it was the same gospel. It was the true gospel. And he didn't want these Colossian believers going anywhere. Now, the truth remains, if they were to persevere, then that would show that they were indeed truly saved. And sometimes we might just have to shrug our shoulders and think if someone walks away and if they deny their faith, then maybe they never truly understood the precious things that they had after all. Because to realize that you came from being an enemy and alienated to be called holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, that should pierce our hearts so deeply that should lift our countenance so mightily, that should wash us from the mire so thoroughly that we would never go back to it. And that's what Paul is questioning here. If you really tasted this, if you remember how he called you holy and blameless and above reproach, you're not going to walk away. You will continue because it's worth it. You will be grounded because your foundation is firm. You will be steadfast because you're persevering towards the goal and you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. There's nothing else in this world that compares to the eternal things that have been given to you in Christ Jesus. Paul's hope for the Colossian believers and for us as well is that they would see the value of everything that Jesus Christ has given them, not just for their sake, but also for his sake. As he says there at the end of verse 23, you heard these things that you heard, which were preached to every creature from under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, while Paul had not personally been in Colossae as far as we know, he knew the truth of the gospel. He had been to other cities, maybe not Colossae by name, but just like Colossae, where people had been pulled from darkness and placed in the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And he's questioning now, what things would you would move you away? 
He says there that this gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. It's the gospel for all mankind. Whoever should believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. And Paul says it's been preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And we might pause on that and say, oh, I am thankful for Paul. I am thankful for the preacher that tells me about the gospel. I'm thankful for the person that led me to Christ. But wait a second. We've all been called to become ministers of the gospel. That that gospel that we have received, we are called to bring forth, to spread forth, to declare lightly, not to let that light shine darkly in a closet, but to let that shine before all men so that all might see and all might know. We are called to become preachers of the gospel, to go into the world and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them the things that you learned and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the Great Commission. And I don't know about you, but this world needs the gospel more now than ever. And we see there in the book of Acts that when they were being persecuted and told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, that although they were fearful, they prayed. And they prayed for one thing. They prayed for boldness. That though the opposition was getting louder, that their boldness might become louder. That they may be bolder to speak the things of the gospel. That they may be bolder to stand up for the name of Jesus Christ. That they might be bolder to declare who Jesus truly is and not who the world wants Jesus to be in the light of the current circumstances in which they lived. We are called to be preachers of the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I need a fresh measure of his grace. I need an outpouring of his spirit. I need him to fill my mouth with words. I need opportunities, and I need the boldness to be able to speak when those opportunities come. You know, it's not up to us to pay attention to what the results are. We're simply to be faithful in declaring that which is true. I heard a story lately of John Quincy Adams, one of the presidents of the United States of America. And after he was president, he went and he was working in Congress. And for 28 years consecutively, he consistently fought for the cause of emancipation of the slaves, even though it seems that he was making no progress at all. Now, mind you, this was much earlier than Abraham Lincoln. And one day while he was leaving the Capitol building, a reporter stopped him and asked why he kept pushing for the emancipation of slaves when it seemed so hopeless. And Adams turned and looked at the reporter and said simply, duty is ours, results are God's. And then he walked on. He knew that he had to do that which was right, regardless of how the response was or who responded or who didn't or whether the nation ever would respond. And they didn't for many years. And the same thing for us. We are called to preach the gospel to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, of which I, Justin, of which you fill in your name in the blank, have become ministers. And we may not be the most profound theologians. We may not be able to debate every existence of who Jesus is and what his nature is. But one thing we know, as Paul reminded us today, is that we know our testimony. That we know that we have come out of darkness. We who once were alienated enemies, now he has called us holy and a blameless and above reproach in his sight. I love the story of the blind man in the Gospel of John, who when they come to him, he says, I don't know, but one thing I know is I was blind and, I was, and now I can see. And the power of your testimony, what has Jesus pulled you out from? And you know that it was him and 100% him who forgave you and called you his own. And now you're holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, called and equipped to be a minister of the gospel. Something that we'll look at next time as we see the suffering it takes to be a follower and proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until then, may the Lord bless your ministry in the gospel.